Welcome to SGO On The Go, where we discuss advances in gynecologic oncology research, clinical practice, and other popular topics in our subspecialty. This episode is part of a two-part series on frailty, which will feature interviews with frailty experts and case presentations. Dr. Li Mei Chen from the University of California, San Francisco will moderate. Dr. Chen? Today's discussion will be the first of a series of two podcasts addressing the concept of frailty and how we assess and prepare our patients for surgery. This first podcast presents example cases to introduce tools and concepts, while the second podcast addresses their practical implementation. In perioperative decision-making, we must perform some review of our patient to evaluate their fitness for surgery. We review comorbidities, functional status, and talk about frailty as a measure that sometimes warrants intervention before surgery. In addition to our clinical judgment, we have tools to use as part of our preoperative assessment. Consider the following patient. A 78-year-old presents with ascites and carcinomatosis. We have asked doctors Jeannie Chern and Stuart Winkler to discuss how they might consider her evaluation and management. This is an interesting and unfortunately common case that we often see. In thinking about this 78-year-old with a new ovarian cancer diagnosis, How would you assess this patient's functional status? So there are several tools that we can use to assist in assessing a patient's fitness for surgery. For example, the preoperative assessment of cancer in elderly tool, or PACE, utilizes elements of the comprehensive geriatric assessment with surgical risk assessment tools. These instruments include mini mental status evaluation, activities of daily living evaluation, instrumental ADLs, global depression scale, brief fatigue inventory, evaluation of performance status via Karnofsky or ECOG, ASA physical status classification, and an index of comorbidities. Though PACE has not been studied in ovarian cancer patients, it has been evaluated in other malignancies, such as breast and GI. Studies of these tools demonstrate that the impairment of ADLs, IADLs, fatigue and performance status, predicted morbidity and extended hospitalization. Overall, this patient's functional status is mildly limited by her ADLs. However, her psychological status may have an impact, which we will discuss later. Using the common and well-validated ECOG performance status, we would consider her a two as she is ambulatory and capable of all self-care, but is unable to carry out any work activities and she is up more than about 50% of waking hours. In addition to her functional status, there are other factors which we need to take into consideration. We mentioned her recent weight loss and her borderline low BMI. How would you address this patient's nutritional status? Right, our patient's initial presentation of a 15 pound weight loss, an underweight BMI of 19 and poor caloric intake are all poor prognostic indicators. Based on her sex, age, and ideal weight, her total caloric intake should be around 1,400 calories, but she only eats about 900 calories due to early satiety and some difficulty in preparing her own meals. Poor nutrition can negatively impact surgical outcomes and postoperative complications. In patients without cancers, studies have demonstrated that in patients older than 70, a BMI of less than 19.4 kilograms per meter squared is associated with increased risk of mortality. This association is also seen in cancer patients. 
weight loss as an independent prognostic factor for survival and associated with lower performance status. There are multiple nutritional risk screening tools that are available to quickly assess and score. The Nutritional Risk Index utilizes serum albumin and the ratio of the actual to the usual body weight. Her NRI score is 78.1, showing severe risk. During the patient's prehabilitation prior to undergoing surgery, we would recommend referral to a nutritionist or dietary consultant to optimize her nutritional status. So we've discussed the patient's nutritional status and how we can potentially improve this prior to surgery. There's also been a lot of talk of how frailty affects patient outcomes. What about frailty assessment and intervention? So our patient has many factors that put her at risk for frailty, which has been defined as a loss of reserve and a vulnerability to changes in health. We know that frail patients are at increased risk for post-op ICU admission, non-home discharge, post-op readmission, and even death. Numerous tools to assess frailty have been published such as the Freed Frailty Index and the aforementioned Comprehensive Geriatrics Assessment. There are also proprietary calculators, such as the Johns Hopkins ACG Frailty Diagnoses Indicators. Most tools include measures of physical frailty, such as fatigue, low activity, weakness, weight loss, and a slow gait, as well as a way to account for an accumulation of comorbidities. For our patient, we will use the 30-question Frailty Deficit Index, which has been validated for ovarian cancer by researchers from the Mayo Clinic. These questions address activities of daily living, exercise tolerance, and comorbidities. While it doesn't make for great podcasting to go question by question through this tool, I'll highlight some of the components that are relevant to our patient. Our patient does pretty well overall with her ADLs, but needs some assistance in climbing stairs and help with transportation. Her BMI is borderline low, above the 18.5 cutoff for this tool. Her hypertension, rheumatoid arthritis, and depression also contribute to her frailty index. After running the numbers, we find that she has six items against her out of 30, and thus her frailty index is 0.2, above the 0.15 cutoff to define frailty. These same researchers from the Mayo Clinic have reported that ovarian cancer patients, such as our patient, who are frail are more likely to have postoperative complications, and frailty is an independent predictor of worse overall survival as compared to non-frail patients. While this is an unfortunate prognostic factor, we can help by ensuring that she has access to rehabilitation through physical and occupational therapy. We mentioned her depression on one hand, but her strong social support on the other. What are some ways that we can assess and improve her psychosocial well-being? Our patient was recently started on an SSRI by her PCP, so she will need follow-up to assess its effectiveness, and likely with a widely used and validated tool such as APHQ9. Non-pharmacologic interventions such as cognitive behavioral therapy or involvement in the cancer-specific support group may also benefit her. Fortunately for our patient, she has a good social support at home with her immediate family and also has a very good network, but it sounds like she could use some assistance from an aide during the day, perhaps with meal preps. With chemotherapy, we can anticipate that she may need some further assistance with ADLs. She certainly will need help postoperatively, and this would be ideally planned well in advance. In summary, our patient's comorbidities, nutritional status, functional status, and social factors all contribute to her treatment success. So, in this scenario of a patient with advanced ovarian cancer, 
she may benefit from prehabilitation interventions while receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy. That's one way to optimize her condition for interval debulking surgery at the appropriate time. Let's consider a similar but different patient. A 74-year-old presents with vaginal bleeding and is diagnosed with endometrial cancer. Doctors Andres Ladanyi and Lisi Simons will next talk about her medical considerations. So our case today is a 74-year-old patient, she, her pronouns, with a BMI of 42, a history of stroke on Plavix, and type 2 diabetes, who has been referred for newly diagnosed FIGO-grade 1 endometrial adenocarcinoma. In her visit, she describes several months of vaginal bleeding that has become progressively heavier, and she appears overall weak and deconditioned. On lab evaluation, her hemoglobin was found to be 7.8. Other notable lab findings include a hemoglobin A1C of 12.8 and a creatinine of 1.5. So when you first meet a patient like this, obviously there are some significant red flags that indicate she is a really high risk surgical candidate. She has several medical comorbidities that do not seem adequately optimized for her to undergo surgical treatment of her endometrial cancer at this time. Fortunately, she has low-grade disease. And so from an oncologic perspective, she probably has a good overall prognosis. We're talking about a patient, therefore, with a likely low-risk cancer, but who requires a high-risk surgery related to her medical comorbidities. The first thing that most of us would probably do is work on correcting her anemia and addressing her poorly controlled diabetes. To address her anemia, it would be reasonable to either start high-dose oral progesterone or place a hormonal IUD to decrease her vaginal bleeding. This has the additional benefit of temporizing the underlying oncologic process since most low-grade endometrial carcinomas are responsive to progesterone therapy with complete response rates as high as 50%. Additionally, iron repletion using IV iron can be initiated to help correct her anemia. IV iron offers a faster rate of repletion over oral iron. This patient has underlying renal disease and therefore may have multifactorial anemia and is likely an increased risk of needing perioperative blood transfusion than other patients. Working with her PCP or endocrinologist to better control her diabetes will definitely take some time. So if her bleeding can be effectively managed with progesterone and her anemia corrected in that time, these interventions would reduce her perioperative risk. However, even with the correction of these specific medical comorbidities, a patient with a history of stroke and renal disease remains a higher than average risk surgical candidate. This is something we can often intuit when meeting a patient, but what we are really assessing intuitively is the concept of frailty. Yes, frailty does seem like a concept that we all have some intuitive understanding of, but more formally, it's defined as a multidimensional syndrome characterized by decreased reserves, leaving an individual more vulnerable to stressors, whether those are physiologic or psychosocial. Essentially, it's an expression of the cumulative risk resulting from multiple age and disease-related deficits across multiple domains. So frailty is really a global risk state. There is increasing evidence that a more integrated assessment of medical frailty is a better way to predict which patients are at a higher risk for adverse perioperative outcomes and high resource utilization. In the context of an increasing focus on patient-reported outcomes, it's also worth noting that the presence of medical frailty is a major predictor of adverse functional outcomes, the risk persists beyond the immediate perioperative period. Frailty may substantially increase the risk of new patient-reported disability, impaired quality of life, and non-home discharge for older patients who are previously living independently in the community. In addition, it's also worth noting that frailty impacts risk over time. 
For example, while 30-day mortality risks are low, even for patients with frailty, typically less than 5%, the one-year mortality rate may be as high as 40% for frail patients following major elective surgery for cancer. So with this context, it seems clear that to improve outcomes for older people with frailty, surgeons should be able to identify their patients who are frail and ideally offer targeted interventions to these patients. Aside from using our intuition, what tools can a busy gynae oncologist implement in their practice to assess frailty? That's a great question. Multiple groups, including the American College of Surgeons and the American Geriatric Society, recommend routine frailty assessment as best practice. However, this is really probably not happening routinely in most clinical care settings. Some of the barriers to this include not being familiar with available tools, concerns about time and resources to complete the assessment, and a lack of systems to operationalize interventions to improve outcomes. There are many published comprehensive frailty assessments, such as the Frailty Index or the Freed Frailty Phenotype, that provide highly detailed information about the patient's frailty and perioperative risk. However, these comprehensive assessments are also very time and resource consuming and are therefore not really practical to apply universally in most clinical settings. Shorter screening tests can be used as an initial screen to identify patients who may require more extensive subsequent evaluation, and this can be a more practical approach for most surgeons. Some examples of screening tests include the frail scale, the Edmonton frail scale, and the clinical frail scale. There is no evidence that any of these tools is superior to the other, so as busy clinicians, it is important to consider things like time, available resources, and goals of the intervention. The Society for Perioperative Assessment and Quality Improvement published recommendations for the perioperative management of frailty, and in their 2018 paper, they lay out a nice workflow diagram. They advocate for using a combination of short screening tools like the Frail Scale or Edmonton Frail Scale to help stratify patients by their risk of perioperative complications. In most cases, a mini cognitive screen should be included as well. Any patients who screen positive for frailty or who fail the cognitive screening should be considered high risk and would ideally go on to receive a more comprehensive geriatric assessment with targeted interventions. So let's go back to our bleeding patient with endometrial cancer. How might we utilize this framework in assessing whether to take her to the OR ASAP to stop the bleeding versus using other temporizing measures while she's further optimized for surgery. Yes, this is the really important point here is that we're all faced with these patients for whom this decision needs to be made in real time and shared with the wishes and values of the patient. If she is quite frail, but we take her to the OR now because of heavy bleeding, she may be at risk for some of these adverse outcomes related to frailty we spoke about earlier. An alternate approach, however, would be to use a frailty screening tool to assess her risk. And if she screens positive, then consider what could be done medically to temporize her bleeding and cancer like progesterone while pursuing a more comprehensive geriatric assessment with targeted prehabilitation. And this approach would likely be associated with better overall perioperative outcomes for this type of patient. So in this scenario of a patient with early endometrial cancer, a frailty assessment can guide targeted interventions. Thank you to the SGO Education Committee, and particularly the Opiate ERAS Working Group, who are the discussants in this podcast. We recognize that there are varying practices nationally, and that different tools may be available or favored at different centers. We hope that this presentation will generate additional discussion in your own clinical management. Our next podcast will continue discussion with some experts in prehabilitation and rehabilitation across other disciplines. 
The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO on-the-go podcasts, please email us at education at sgo.org. 